the Red Sox who ruined with um, Ted Williams before Bobby Doerr. Well, anyway, it was in Pennsylvania because um, Wagner came from Pennsylvania. And Peter Duchin was doing the um, music, you know, the society orchestra leader. And he said, there's a guy in the audience here that knew my mother and father. His mother died in childbirth. Um, and Lefty goes, will you stand up? Would you like to play the saxophone? Because Dad had played in his band. You know, Dad declined that night. He said, no, <laughs> it passed. Well, that brings us to part two of the podcast with Renona Gomez, the co-author of Lefty, an American Odyssey, published by Ballantine Books. Uh, and now we're going to turn it over to our clubhouse crowd with some questions. Uh, were your parents there when you made your debut, and were they encouraging when you decided to become a... Or you were in... in yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, well, my dad wasn't there. He sent me roses and a telegram, but my mother was, of course. And um, and he called me on the telephone, and, and he did make other ones, yes. And you were eight years old, when this happened? Yes, yes. But, you know, my... my my mother's, my grandmother, my mother's mother, Nellie Grady, was a songwriter, and and she published many many songs, and um, so I guess it's in the genes. <laughs> when your dad was playing in New York, were uh, were you here during the summers in New York? Did you? Yes, we li- we lived in a New York penthouse, and, and what? Yes, and but then of course. After the World Series, you know, we'd be in Lexington. You had mentioned the insomnia. Yes, well, during the baseball season. um, They lived in many different hotels, the Greystone, but mainly the Ansonia. And then we had a New York penthouse apartment. And, um, and, you know, and then during the off-season, I mean, not during the off-season, well, in the off-season, yes, we would go to uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, and then also, you know, back then, sports medicine isn't what it is today. And also conditioning. There weren't weights and things like that. Um, so most of, many, many of the ballplayers went hunting, you know. And my dad would go up to Rangeley, Maine, because, you know, uh, when in the book you will read that he, uh, done spring training, he met uh, Bud Russell who was a very, very well-known stunt pilot. And Lefty was just determined to learn how to fly an airplane. He was absolutely riveted by, you know, um, aeronautics. And that's how he met Bing Russell, who is the father of Kurt Russell. And so the family, uh, up to a few years ago, had this great big spread up Kennebago Lake, 13 miles from the Canadian border. I even uh, worked up there during the summer. So they would go bear hunting and deer hunting, and um, so they would be up there, um, you know, for like six, seven weeks. And I remember my mother was telling me the first time she went out hunting with my dad, you know, with um, uh, Bing and Lou, and Kurt wasn't born then. And so she has her... 410 and dad's ahead of her and they're tracking deer and all of a sudden she saw this great shot and she she clicks it and the gun there's nothing and she said wait a minute there's no bullets in my gun and my dad said yeah and you're walking behind me too (laughs) and it's the first time you've ever been on the trail she was so bummed she couldn't believe it oh dear so 
Uh, you have that interesting story in the book about the first meeting of uh, Lefty and Satchel Page early on in, in their younger days. But during the whole integration of baseball struggle and issue, and did Lefty have any strong views about it one way or another? Yes, he did. And uh, later on in the book, you will read, in 1945, Lefty was asked to go down to Caracas, uh, Venezuela, because they were starting, uh, they were beginning pro ball down there. They did not have organized pro ball. He could not speak Spanish. That did not deter him. And so he went down, and he was the first uh, major league star to manage a mixed race team. And Chico Carrascal was on his team, and Carrascal. And Ray Noble and Roy Campanella was not on Cerveceria that Dad was managing. Uh, he was on Vargas' team down there. And Dad knew that by going down there, uh, the press would report it because he didn't see color. He only saw talent. And he really thought the color line should be broken. And so that's when he went down there. And they almost won the pennant, which led Lefty to this say, sometimes it's better if the players don't know what the manager is talking about because they came in, you know, just a few games out of winning. And Pee Wee Reese, who was so instrumental, uh, Jackie Robinson's uh, very dear friend and teammate, you know, credited Lefty uh, when I was talking to him, and it's in the book, um, of bringing publicity to the fact that the, you know, color line should be broken. And the question that you asked, Dad was 15 when he pitched against Satchel Page. That was, uh, Satchel was uh, barnstorming, and they pitched both games of a doubleheader double for guaranteed shoes. And each took a game, and my father was just mesmerized. We don't know how old Satchel was at that time, because, you know, um, but truly he is one of the if not the greatest pitcher, one of the all-time greats. And so anyway, he said to my dad at the time, so what are you getting for this game? And he's, and dad said, what are you getting? And Satchel said, I'm getting a share of the gate. And Lefty said, he had, Lefty had the biggest feet in baseball, size 13. He says, I'm getting um, a new pair of guaranteed shoes. <laughs> so Satchel <laughs> said, well, Whatever, it's going to cost him some leather. But what happened was, when my dad was telling me the story, he never did get the shoes. And he says, you know, it did cross my mind to call up the shoe company, you know, 50 years later and say, by the way, you never gave me those shoes, but I knew I'd never get past the secretary. And, um, and then we went down after he managed in uh, Binghamton uh, in the Yankee Farm System, Class A. He had uh, Dick Rashi, uh, Whitey Ford who he named Whitey, and Coleman, and uh, Leo Rigetti, Dave Rigetti's father, uh, who the pitching coach of Detroit Tigers. We went down to Havana in uh, 47, and he, Carl Erskine, was on his team. Many, many of the players were down there. And in fact, uh, Dad also put, uh, put on uh, pitching clinics at the University of Havana, and Fidel Castro was a young university student, and he came, he was a right-handed pitcher. He's always been interested in baseball. And so he attended a lot of Lefty's uh, clinics. And then when Lefty was asked in 58 by Secretary Dulles to do an ambassador goodwill tour through South America, Guatemala, and Havana after President Nixon was spit upon down in South America, uh, he landed in Havana 
he went uh, the other guy in the uh, Goodwill tour was Jack O'Connell, the umpire, and that was the night that uh, Castro came out of the hills to seize power. Dad was at Ernest Hemingway's uh, home in Havana. Dad used to swim with Ernest Hemingway at the New York Athletic Club when he was a Yankee. And Hemingway said, listen, Lefty, uh, I'm not going to tell you why, but my limo's going to take you back to the Hotel Nacional and don't come out tonight. So Dad didn't leave the hotel, and that was the night Castro came out. And then, of course, you know, the country is in revolution, everything, and nobody can get out. My father's thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to get out of this country. And uh, But he had done, a, Dad had done so many years of work, even before 58, since 1947, since 47, 48, when we lived in Havana, uh, with Los Cubanitos, which is the uh, little league of, um, of Cuba. And so Fidel Castro was very aware of this. So my dad goes to leave Havana now, the revolution, you know, in 58, 59, and his passport is invalid because when he went to Washington to see uh, Secretary Dulles, he had brought his passport that he had used on the 34 trip to Japan with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And of course, do we expect the government? They said, hey, you know, we'll take care of all the details. We'll have your... Um, passport reissued up to date, don't worry about it of course it wasn't done, so here nobody paid attention to all these other countries because you know there's VIPs walking around and all, well we won't bother them, but now a revolution is going on and, and an American wants to leave Havana so there was no way they would let him out so finally what happened was Fidel Castro heard about this and to the embassy so he passed that my dad could leave or else left he would have you know, we would have been living in Havana for the rest of our life, which, by the way, at that time was a gorgeous place. You know, really. Um, we went to school down there. Of course, we spoke no Spanish, but my mother said, deal with it, <laughs> which we did. That was the type of mom I had. Deal with it. Hi. Uh, Verona, do you still go back to the whole thing? Yes, I was just up there in September when Dad's, one of Dad's films, they have film festival every year and uh, his uh, Journey to Japan film was chosen so we were up there and I'll be up there in uh, for induction weekend I'm doing a signing up there oh, I, because I know they have people come back I've spent six years researching and writing this book good for it's you all about the history of the induction ceremony and I just I have in the bio for your father how um, his humor but he seemed to be very humble when he received, I went, I went through every one of the speeches up through 2010. And he seemed to be very humble when he gave his speech. And, but he did have finally some humor at the end. I'll just quote it. Uh, you, you probably will remember it. But, um, he had one quip. I want to thank Joe Maggio for running down all my mistakes. That was the little humor that he came back with. Uh, in his speech, they they treat. Have you gone to an induction yes. recently? Because they they have changed it so much from the time your father was inducted. Right. Uh, Mickey Mantle. One of the reasons he didn't come back was because he was hounded by autograph seekers. They would come into the hotel at all hours of the night and bother him. And they finally, the whole thing changed that. So if you go up now, you're undoubtedly aware that you cannot, if you're not part of the uh, 
Hall of Fame or the Hall of Fame family or the press, you cannot go into the hall. Into the, uh, well, hotel. even when we were at the Otis Hager in '72, they had uh, security guards on the elevators, and there were there was you know to prevent fans from coming up. There weren't that many fans that got past the uh, guards, so I don't know how Mickey Mantle. Uh, I don't know how he was hounded that much. Um, they did have they had like autographed tents. But, you know, but there would be definite times for signing. And I know my dad signed uh, baseballs all the, you know, all the time. Lefty enjoyed signing for the fans. You know, uh, Babe would spend hours and hours. And he said to Lef- Lef- Babe, Babe got a hold of my dad when he was a young rookie. And he said, look, there's two things for the basics of baseball. Number one, win the games. Number two, remember, without the fans in the stands, you're nothing. And my father really thought that the fans were the most important people. They were running through our house all the time. You know, now sitting in your clubhouse here, you have all this memorabilia. Well, Dad had this incredible collection, you know, that's still in the family. But there was, fans rang our doorbell all the time. And especially when we moved back to California, because naturally no one's coming up to our, you know, cliffside house in Durham that much. But, you know, in New York and also in, uh, in Novato, California, uh, I mean all the time. And there, we didn't run around the house in pajamas or we were always dressed because <laughs> there were total strangers walking through our house all the time. And we thought nothing about it. And it wasn't until I started, like, researching, you know, getting, doing the book and researching it that even today... It was just, I, I don't really think anything about it. We constantly, the doorbell would ring and chime, take me out to the ball game. <laughs> and we would open the door and there would be people. We had no idea who they were. And they would just walk through up and down the halls and into the garage. And, you know, they, they could be old, they could be young. I remember saying, Dad, there's some little cutie pies out there. These the little <laughs> girls, like three and four years old. I remember um, it was Mother's Day, and my mother was uh, traveling in Scotland and Wales, and I many times would go out to spend the time if my mom was gone with my dad, you know. So we're there, and it's Mother's Day, and these two teenagers drive up, and they throw their bikes on the lawn, and uh, they come in, and Dad's talking baseball with them, and uh, he's signing, you know, pictures for them. And he said, guys, do you know what day it is today? It's Mother's Day. And they said, yeah, we know. He said, so what wonderful thing are you doing for your mother today? And the kid says, we're staying out of the house. That's why we're at your house. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they were, you know, we had no idea who these people were. And we would just meet them and say, hi, how's it going? And uh, many times... If they were, if Dad happened to be there off a road trip, uh, they would even come in when Mom was there. And if we were eating, they would, you know, they would walk into the uh, our dining room, and um, Dad might be behind them, and they would say to my mom, or the fan would say, "Would you take a picture of me with Lefty Gomez?" And my mother would put down her knife and fork and say, "Sure." And she'd take the picture, and the guy would be all enthused or the gal. And then, you know, and they take off, and we'd never see this person again. But I mean, it was just, but it was, but 
we grew up thinking that the fans were so important because Dad took this so much to heart. And it's true. Without the fans, hey, these guys can be the best ball players in the world without the fans. They're nothing. And um, so, I mean, we just, you know, we'd be in the grocery store. Dad would like to go grocery shopping, you know, when he because he was sick of, like, chicken and on the banquet circuit. So he would... He thought it was fun to push a cart and go down there and look at stuff. And these people would come up and say, are you the legend? Oh, my God, are you? He'd say, no, man, I'm just a guy, you know, <laughs> buying groceries. I'm not a legend. And it was, um, you know, or another time we were walking across to go into this Perini's gourmet shop. And the fellow who picks up the armored car, what, you know, Brinks? Right. Okay, but Brinks. it wasn't Brinks. It was another one. So, I mean, we're dad and I are walking there, and the guy runs, gets out of the car. That's, and he comes up and he says, Lucky, I've been hoping I would see you someday. Would you please sign these <laughs> pictures? And my father says, what about the money? <laughs> you know? But, I mean, it was just, um, fans were just a part of our life. And, uh, and we thought it was, uh, we thought all ball players were as, as accessible as, as Lefty. I mean, we just thought that was the way it was. You know, he handed out gum, and Topps Chewing Gum would always send him boxes and boxes of gum. So he'd give them an autograph, take them through the memorabilia for these little kids, sign the, give them some gum. And when he didn't have any more gum, there'd be a sign on our front door, sorry, out of gum, come back tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but that's just how we grew up. How, how old were you approximately during, the, during these years? Up through my teenage years. You know, twenties, oh. and you know, and then, uh, and I was always out with out with them. You know, even when I was married, and um, you know, they they were our parents, but really great friends. You know, they were fun to be with. I traveled a lot with my mom, and you know, and went to a lot of different things with my parents. So, and that's one of the reasons why you probably wonder why it took so long for this book to be published because we did all. By the time my dad died in 89, and he was on his way to spring training, he, you know, he had no intention, he was no intention of uh, quitting. And my mom, who swam 84 laps a day, mm. all right, she did it for all these charity events and everything, but um, we had planned after, so all the research was done, all the 350 interviews were done, and what, what a lineup it was going to be. We're going to do a book tour with Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and Dad and I, and we're going to have a blast. And then these two parents had the audacity to die on me, <laughs> and all the joy went out of it. I just said, okay, I'm not doing this book right now. You know, I teach 60 lessons a week. I'm, I don't need this. They're gone. Who cares? So I put it on the back burner, and then about three years ago I woke up, and you know you have one of those epiphanies? I said, oh my God, Renona, if you're lucky, you've got 20 years to live. I'm 72 years old. So, you know, what, 92 if I'm lucky? Maybe 100. So I said, I don't want to be in that coffin, you know, and have a book that I didn't get to bring to fruition, plus all the people that had given me all these wonderful interviews. I'd go to a cocktail party thinking I'll have a good time and someone would invariably say, so when are you going to publish that book that we gave you an interview, you know, like 10, 15 years ago? So Lawrence Goldstone, who helped me pace it and, and 
has a PhD in constitutional law, so he's very um, amenable to a historical arc. I taught his daughter piano for about five or six years, and she went on to college. So I'm in the library, and I picked up one of his books, uh, Anatomy of a Deception, and I said, I'm going to go ask Larry how you get a book published. So I went, he lived in Westport at the time. I knocked on his kitchen door, and I said, Hey, Larry, how do you get a book published? And he says, come right in. You've got to get an agent. I said, I do? Yeah. So, you know, he uh, put me in touch with um, Michael Carlisle, the great New York agent who did the Andre Agassi book and all. And then Larry said, okay, we're, we've got to put some structure on this because I had, you know, I had enough material for like 1,200, 1,800 pages. So, uh, we and Random House said max was like 400, you know. And uh, so Larry was absolutely marvelous in helping me pace it and structuring it. And so that's why the book uh, came out uh, now, because it, it, when you read it, it's really an as-told-to book. Because whatever fell out of my father's mouth, I took a pencil and wrote it down. Or my mom or my aunt, Sonny, who was in the USO for about... Uh, 25 years, you know, through World War II and Korea. And I was extremely fortunate and lucky because here I've got a baseball raconteur who's famous for being a great storyteller. My mother's an actress and the other one's an actress. <laughs> How could I lose? All I needed was half a brain to, to write it down, you know. And I also think that being a pianist, I was very attuned to the cadence of their voices. I could pick out what was important because when you do 350 interviews, you know they're talking about their dogs and their cats. I mean, people, that's how people talk, right? They, even myself, I spin off into things. Well, you people don't want to read about, say, somebody's cat or dog, so, but I was smart enough to think, oh, I don't want this, but I'll take this. And uh, so my talent lay number one in being fortunate enough to be born to these two people. That was my first talent. And my second talent, was to um, recognize what was important that these people were telling me and to get it down on paper. Well, you did an amazing job. Thank you. And uh, were there any other questions? Uh, I was just curious, your uh, mom being an actress, your dad being a ball player, uh, how much influence did that marriage have perhaps on your dad's roommate in uh, proposing to Marilyn Monroe? I don't think you need any encouragement to <laughs> You've got to be joking. <laughs> um, she was a wonderful girl. My father said, you know, surprisingly, she was very, very quiet. You know, she really, you know, she had the um, Broadway glamour persona, but um, away from the stage, she was very, very quiet. And... Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. They would get together, <clears throat> Marilyn. They were very good friends with Joe, and you saw in the pictures in the film with Dorothy Arnold, uh, his first wife, who was an absolutely gorgeous girl and, and a wonderful girl. And, um, and then they were very good friends with uh, Marilyn and uh, Joe. They would, if Joe and Marilyn were in New York, they would meet for dinner, you know, something like that. But... I don't think my father 
I don't know what my father and Joe talked about as far as uh, marriage or anything like that because again, then again I was telling you that would be so personal that my father wouldn't mention it and um, but she was beautiful both of the girls were beautiful did he stay in touch with Bill Essick and Joe Devine who signed him? yes that was amazing you know um, both dad and Joe were very lucky because Joe's remember his price dropped and Bill Essex was groovy enough to take a chance as dad said it was the greatest thing for the Yankees for Bill Essex to realize that um, he was young and his uh, knee would heal and um, and the the game that dad was uh, uh, bought from uh, off the seals that was the only game that his mother and father saw because Coyote refused I mean he refused to sign the uh, seals contract he absolutely would not sign his son was not going to be a ball player nothing but a bum and uh, and that's a lot of them were bums back then you know those rowdies you know before then but his mother signed it so the game he had a uh, something like a 16 or an 18 game winning streak my father did consecutive so the Yankees bought him off of that but of course with great trepidation because he was so thin and before he could uh, show up he had to be sent to that he was sent to the health farm and as Lefty said you know in when he was talking about this he says you know now that I think of it Fernando where did the Yankees think I would have $200 to pay for a train trip across the nation he didn't have that type of money so Ping Bodhi, who is a legendary character, who would come out, who played on the San Francisco Seals, and would literally, he came from the Cow Hollow section where Cressetti came from. He would bring his pigs to Old Rec, their recreation, and they would be eating all the candy and everything. Then he'd take the pigs back after the game. Well, anyway, after Dad is bought, he has no money, so Ping was an electrician, so he would... Uh, in the off-season work at the Universal Studios down in L.A. So he said to Lefty, okay, why don't you come down and be my assistant? So my father, in order to make money for the train trip back east for his first spring training in 30, he went that seat, you know, the 29, you know, the, the winter season, and he worked at Universal Studios, and he was the guy who climbed the ladder, you know, and put new light bulbs on the movie sets and gawked at all the starlets. <laughs> And that's how he met uh, Paul Whiteman and Bing Crosby. He didn't hobnob with them, but uh, they were shooting The King of Jazz then, the first Technicolor film at Universal Studios, and they heard that, okay, this kid who's doing the light bulbs was just bought by the Yankees, <laughs> and Hollywood Studio uh, sponsored one of the teams. And so they would come out to watch Dad pitch. And they were rooming, you were, one of the guests were mentioning that um, Ping Bodhi, Dad, and Del Webb, who eventually, you know, the, who, what's the big place in Arizona? Sun Valley. Sun Valley and Las Vegas and all, and he, and he went on to own the Yankees. Well, he was a struggling carpenter, and he was rooming with Dad and Ping Bodhi, and he was... What he was doing, he came out of Oakland, and he was a frustrated pitcher. He couldn't be a pitcher because he, he had contracted typhoid. So he was banging two-by-fours on the Universal movie lot. 
and he couldn't scrape up three dollars. He was always moaning and groaning that he couldn't, you know, do his three dollars a week of the share of the rent with Ping Bodie and Dad. And there was so so Ping had one room with a bed, and the other room had only one bed. So they would toss coins at night to see, you know, heads you were in the bed, tails you were on the floor. And uh, so his dad said, I don't know what they were paying Dell at the time, uh, but he couldn't afford the rent. And it must have been a wonderful feeling to eventually buy the Yankees, <laughs> you know, with Dan Topping. And um, so anyway, so a lot of these people who are so legendary, you know, they really had scrappy beginnings and they just wouldn't wouldn't take no for a dream. I mean, really, you know, it is the the. The book is about, and about so many of these ballplayers, it's uh, creating the life you want. My father knew what he wanted, you know, and nobody was going to stop him. I'm sure you have to be lucky. Like he said, I'd rather be lucky than good. And he said that's why it was so easy to keep fame in, purport, in um, perspective because I knew I had talent and determination, but I still had to be lucky. But, you know, he... he he wanted the American dream. My mother wanted the American dream. They, whatever it took, they were going to do it. I mean, and um, if the challenges came in, um, even when my mother refused to marry him because he wanted her to give up her career and she took her three-carat diamond and said, this is what I think of your diamond if I'm going to have to give up my career. And she dropped it in the toilet and flushed the toilet in front of him. I mean... <laughs> Okay, he said. Whoa, this is a depression. Three cards, and he ran down the the hotel and said, started screaming, "Shut off all the water faucets!" And somehow they, it was amazing. They found the ring, a marquee cut in in one of the traps, and my. And Larry Goldstone, my co-author, said, so he took it back and got his money back. I said, no way. He, he was going to marry her. She just didn't know it yet. He did not take no for an answer. So he took it back, had it, you know, uh, reclaimed and everything. And six or eight weeks later, they, um, you know, they were on again. But, I mean, he just <laughs> didn't take. And all the stereotyping he went through, being so thin. And, and, and even in the book, remember, his first spring training, he was knocked in the mouth, and his teeth were all broken down at his first spring training, and they capped them. And then the sports medicine of the day, the reason Jacob Roop and uh, Ed Barrow, the general manager, said, the reason you're not gaining weight is because there's pus flowing behind those teeth. Remember that when you were a kid? You'd hear about pus throwing in your system, and that's why you're not getting... Ah, that is so much baloney. So they said that we, the reserve clause was in, and and uh, Ed Barrow said to my father, you want to be a Yankee? Then those teeth are coming out, and they pulled his teeth out in 1930. Not all his teeth, but the whole... You know, they're out. They're gone. And so that's... There was nothing wrong with his teeth. I mean, you know, so... Did he gain weight? No. But, I mean, if, if anything happened to you, they, they usually took your tonsils out. You've probably yeah. come across that. Um, no matter what, you know, <laughs> you're not hitting well. Take his tonsils out. It, it was farcical. Contemporary um, similar age. So, you know, I'm thrilled for the ballplayers of today. They only have to pitch so many uh, pitches because no arm 
can withstand uh, pitching nine innings. So sports medicine is fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, all they had was like an ice pack, and that's where sports medicine was at the time. Or they rubbed you down with Rubifax, and my father said he took Rubifax home, and my mother could take, could refinish furniture with it. <laughs> he said it took the finish right off the wood. He says that's what they put on our bodies. So, you know, it was it's a different era. I guess after that's the sure. ring went down the toilet, he never said another word about his career. <laughs> I think uh, we could easily dance all night, and uh, but unfortunately, Vernona has to get back to Connecticut. Uh, but I would just like to thank you so much for those of you listening on the podcast. The book is called "Lefty: An American Odyssey," published by Ballantine Books by Vernona Gomez and Lawrence Goldstone. For those of you fortunate enough to have been in the clubhouse, we have plenty of copies here. If you'd like to purchase any of them tonight, and. Uh, it's really been a pleasure, and the, the only thing I'd like to end with, uh, just on a little personal note, you and I had some beautiful emails, correspondence back and forth, and one thing I never told you was uh, that my dad was, my love of baseball comes from my dad, uh, who grew up in the Depression on the Lower East Side. He was not a Yankee fan, uh, but my dad loved your dad, and I would hear these stories about your dad all the time, and now I know why. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.